Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? Yeah, you know Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. I'm down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? Are you ready to get down with some D&D? I know I am, and I am joined, as I am always joined, by the Machiavellian, motivated, and mystical Mad Wizard Merwin. What is up, Sean? Wow, it's been a busy couple of weeks, Chris. I agree. It's been very, very busy. It's almost like the end of the year, and there's a lot going on, and stuff, and games, and writing, and family, and holidays, and stuff. Yes, all that stuff. All... all all of that stuff. Oh my god, I'm so tired that I'm yawning. Stop yelling on the mic, Chris. Anyways, that's, that's, <laughs> that's how, how excited we are to be here. Woo! Yeah, um, looks like I'm getting a new job. Yeah? What job? Yeah. I'm working at a place called YRC. It's a it's a shipping company. I'm working as a clerk overnight. Wow. I know, crazy no everybody, right? Yeah. It won't uh it won't mess with any of this stuff though, so that's good. That is good. You All you right, will well, still get some sleep? Yeah, I mean, I'll sleep in at some point. You know, there there are times that I can sleep. I'll find time to nap. Uh, what uh, okay. what about you? What's new with you? Oh, it was just announced that I am working on a season eight epic uh, that, that will that, premiere at Winter Fantasy. That's cool. Yep, uh, M T Black and I will be working on it, and I should oh, I should man. say M T Black will be working on it, and I will be helping him. So so you pretty excited? You two are, you two are like heavy hitters in that in that world these days so that's that's a pretty going to be a pretty good epic then it's going to be a pretty fun thing we can't talk too much about it uh or at least i can't yet but the the uh the title has uh starport in it starport so, yeah star starport yes star starport okay yes, yes. so that's that's going to be fun hmm okay then and if you've well, read Dungeon of the Mad Mage, you know what I'm talking about. I haven't read it yet. I have to read it. I will uh, read it at some well, point. People out there who've read it know what I'm talking about. All right, let's do some announcements. Well, in other yes. words, like our, our new section, is, I suppose, too. So, Sly Flourish via D&D Beyond. How to run Theater of the Mind Combat. This isn't why you would run Theater of the Mind Combat. This is how you run Theater of the Mind Combat. Yep. Yeah, I mean, Mike Shea, who the world knows as Sly Flourish... Uh, writes really insightful, really clear in a coherent manner, explains things well, you know, always has has a cool take on things and is is willing and able to explain himself. So the previous article that he wrote for D&D Beyond, um, and again, let me praise D&D Beyond uh, for not only being a great tool, but for being a great place for a great clearinghouse for, for D&D news and articles. Um, he wrote a previous article for D&D Beyond about why to use Theater of the Mind instead of grid combat. And I will you know, put that aside to talk about this one, which is how to do so. And it's a really long article, so he takes the time to kind of give bullet point summaries of everything that he's going to talk about, and then he talks about each point within great detail. And I don't think we have the time right now, because we've got a lot to talk about, to go through it point by point. Um, but if you are interested in running theater of the mind, uh, whether you do so now and want to do it better, or you're someone who's so used to grid combat that you don't think you could ever do theater of the mind, uh, give it a, give it a look. It really breaks down well the 
uh, the ins and outs and the how-tos of running a good theater of the mind combat. You know, I think that next week on the show, we'll just do this as our episode. Okay. Sound good? That's That sounds great to me. It's a, wor- it's a worthwhile topic to talk about. I mean, I yeah. love theater of the mind combat. I love grip-based combat, too. I've used both. I used also, you know... Mm-hmm. Um, We've talked about it on the show before, but uh, like relative positioning combat, so like all of that stuff sure. is fun. But theater of the mind is is theater of the mind is actually sort of my jam because that's how Dungeon World works. So mm-hmm. yeah, and and there are benefits which we can talk about next week too to using both um, and preferences by players for both. So you know it's it is a com or it is a combat it is a topic that is worth a full show for sure. Mm-hmm. I, I think we've done a show on some of that stuff before, but we'll do it via the the lens of Mike Shea. Sounds good. All right. Next thing, the Streets of Avalon Kickstarter. So when this episode drops, we will be a day or so, a day into the Streets of Avalon Kickstarter. Uh, That is our next project for Encoded Designs. It is a city-based source book. It is, if you're a 5th edition fan, you should check it out. Here it goes. Welcome to the streets of Avalon. This massive fantasy city holds adventure, intrigue, and a darkness that comes from its denizens, both above and below. This Kickstarter is to fund the source book for the city of Avalon, along with additional material through stretch goals to add more darkness to the city and provide supplemental material for the world's most popular role-playing game. That's right, Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition. So, Mm -hmm. just like a couple of the stretch goals are are new classes. There's going to be um, an Avalon Ranger, which is an urban ranger, and then uh, an urban barbarian also. Which awesome. uh, some of that stuff's already been play tested, so like we're gonna like do more play testing on it, of course, because classes are tricky, right? So, yep. Uh, there's tons yeah, of material I'm... in the book too for for a variety of things. Sean made the book a lot better after the first read through. Yeah, and I can't wait to to give it its final uh, proofing afterward, after where everything's done, and get it out to the backers. But uh, you can ke- check it out by going to Kickstarter.com, uh, looking for Encoded Designs or Streets of Avalon. Hmm. I'm so excited. I'm so very excited. You know who else is excited? Brett's excited. Brett is very excited. Phil is also excited. Like, but uh, like we, we finished kind of putting the Kickstarter page together. We're just putting the final touches on the video. So, you know, all that good stuff. Mm-hmm. All right. The full AL campaign for Eberron is out the door. The Embers of the Last War, which I'm I'm running it like... Uh, I don't know if I'm going to run it all as it is. Like, I might just start putting in some of my own stuff inside of that. But, like, so far it's been a good time. Yep. So it contains 11 adventures that go from levels zero. Yes, you heard that correctly. There is a level zero adventure that you can play with pre-generated characters to kick off the series. Or you can just run the levels one through ten adventures. Um, their, Their numbers, if you're playing it through the Adventures League, is ddal elw Oh, one through ten, and you know, I took part in the writing of this. I wrote the eighth adventure called the Kunderic Job, and it's a really great series. Uh, I want to give a special thanks not just to the writers who who were excellent, all of them Guild Adepts, but also to James Intercasso, who took up the mantle of producing this uh, series. Uh, Rich Lescuflair, who did the incredible layout for the writing. And then Ashley Lawson, who came on uh, after the first adventure to do the editing uh, of the series. And she did a great job as well. So thank you to everyone. If you're an Eberron fan, even if you're not an Adventures League player, um, these adventures are there for you. One adventure per level. So if you want to, as Chris is talking about, add your own content, uh, you can do so and make a, you know, make a whole campaign of it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. 
Well, that's that's all of our announcements, right? As far as I know, I found out I'm going to uh, going to pack south. Really cool. Yeah, we're gonna take the whole cool. family. Take take a little trip. Nice. That's neat. Very cool. Yeah. All right. So, well, can, it's not really an announcement. I'm just excited. Yeah, that is very exciting. I get to uh, go to San Antonio. <laughs> I would like to go to San Antonio. It's probably a lot warmer there. I would uh, let's so. talk about our topic for the day, which um, we're going to take a little bit of a break for a couple of weeks from the, the Dragon Heist stuff. We are going to do the last chapter of Dragon Heist. Well, at least one more chapter of Dragon Heist at some time in the future. And then we're going to do a bunch of the um, levels of the, uh, the Dungeon of the Mad Mage. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, let's talk about city-based adventures. I want to talk just like an overview of city-based adventures. I mean, we just did this whole thing about a city-based adventure, basically, and we're about to launch a Kickstarter for a for a mega city. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, we we should be able to talk about this intelligently, right? Right. And Sharn, where the uh, where the Eberron campaign is set, is also a large city. It is. Mm-hmm. So we're going to talk about Sharn and Waterdeep and Avalon as our examples, but we'll, we'll kind of go through this. Um, so first thing is, like, what goes into city-based adventuring? Uh, Sean, you want to start? Sure. So there's, I look at it in two ways. You know, as a DM, when you decide that you're going to run a city-based adventure or city-based campaign, uh, you have to think of the major drawbacks and the major benefits um, because it's different than running any other kind of campaign. And sometimes it can be... A little bit intimidating, especially for new DMs, to to drop um, their their first campaign right into the middle of a large city, because uh, there's a lot happening in a city that the characters can interact with that you can't plan for, right? You when I when a new DM comes to me and says, "I'm going to start running a game. I'm going to make my own games." What what's your advice? And my first advice is, start small. You don't need to yeah. create everything. You know, just create what the characters are going to be touching um, in those first encounters, in those first couple of sessions, in those first adventures, and then grow the setting along with the characters' growth and power. Now, in a city-based adventure, that is much harder to do because the characters can be wandering up a street, they can turn a corner, and they can ask what's on this street. And there's no way you can just plan for everything, especially if you're dealing with a metropolis like Sharn or Waterdeep or Avalon. Well, let's so, talk about let's yeah. talk about that for a second because there's, sure. there's probably a way to do the start small thing in a city, and that's mostly about how you frame things, right? Right. Well, well why don't we come to the framing later? Sure. Okay, because um, you're absolutely right. Uh, but it's it's easier to do if you're dealing with a tiny town on the edge of a wilderness. Oh, it's, That's it's all way easier. You know, you can you can make six buildings, know everything about those six buildings, and have everything covered. Whereas if you're in a city, those six buildings are like one block of uh-huh. a city with a thousand blocks. Yeah, so, and there's a lot of, um, and I I agree with you. There's probably a lot of D and D players out there yeah. that are very. Um, they sort of have an expectation of like if you're in a city, like everything is there, right? Like you, right. the, the exactly. game master knows where what is inside of every building. Which, yep. by the way, that's not actually true. But we'll get to that later. <laughs> right. And so, so as as a DM in a city based campaign, you will need probably to ad lib a little bit, and that's not necessarily a drawback because learning that skill is very valuable in not just city based campaigns, but in all campaigns. And there are ways that as as Chris could well attest, that you can prepare to be unprepared. It's almost mm-hmm. like we know someone who wrote a book called Never Unprepared. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so 
so don't don't not do it because of that drawback. Just be aware that it's it's something that you need to be aware of. Now, on the other hand, as a DM, there are many benefits um, for running a, a city-based campaign because By you can way, put any kind of oh, go ahead. Since you mentioned it, Never Unprepared is a book written by Phil Vecchio, and you can go pick that up on Drive Through RPG. Uh, it's by Engine Publishing. He would greatly appreciate it. Absolutely, great book uh, that that talks all about what we're talking about here in uh-huh. terms of ad libbing. So, well, more um, about the benefits. Product. Yeah, the 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 benefits of uh, a city based campaign are you can pretty much run any kind of adventure through a city. Yeah, even you can. an ex- exploration type of wilderness adventure if the city has a zoo or a park. Or any area that is a ruin, yep, the there's slums. your exploration. Yep, there's your exploration um, that you might normally do through a hex crawl through a, a forest. Um, mm-hmm. You could still do something like that. Totally. Um, and, and another thing is everything the characters might need are, are, is readily available in a city. So if you're out in a dungeon miles and miles from, from civilization and you need someone to cast or move curse and you're not high enough level, um, that becomes a problem. If you're in a city, you've got sages and alchemists and priests and other allies that are all readily available to keep the story you want to tell moving if necessary. Uh, It's not a coincidence that the world's largest dungeon, pretty much, Undermountain, is on top of one of the world's largest cities in Waterdeep because they play off of each other. They play to the strengths and the needs of each other, and that makes that a synergy with them being so close to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that's good. Now, as a player, if you're going to be playing in an, in an urban setting, in an urban campaign, you need to get that urban mindset. Uh, it's not the Wild West usually, right? Unless you're talking about a city like Luskin or some other kind of lawless place. Um, you want to remember that you just can't walk around killing everyone because there are laws and authorities and there are powers greater than you in the world that you do need to take into account. Um, that's part of the uh, the, the fun of, of such a thing because, you know, you might not be dealing with the gods um, looking over you, but City Watch is right there, and maybe you're a few levels higher than they are, but there are hundreds of them and just one of you. Plus, and, you know, you live there. Yeah, exactly. Yep. And, and, and when you start and you killing don't guards, to, yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like yeah, so it becomes a problem. If you start throwing fireballs around, uh, that that is a problem. That doesn't make for being a good neighbor. Uh, that's true. And so, as a player, also be ready to help the DM uh, populate the world. If you are exploring and the DM seems to be having trouble coming up with an idea for what's in that building or who this is. Um, feel free to offer to help build the setting for them with with you. And don't just do it for your own benefit. Don't just do it so there's a dude there that's willing to sell you healing potions, right? Do it to make the story that you're telling as a group better. And if you can get into that mindset where you understand that the DM isn't going to have at his or her fingertips every single thing that uh, that might be in every single building, then you're going to be okay if you're not pushing that toward the DM. Sound good? Yeah, it's it's a, it's an amazing thing to do because it makes you it does a couple of things for your game. One, it lets you feel like you have some ownership over the the storytelling part. And if you don't want that, that's fine too. Like you know, I get that. Some people don't want to play the game that way. They just want to play their characters and be in there. But there is a there's a level of play that some people enjoy, and that I suggest trying out where you get to contribute to the storytelling as as in some meaningful ways that help build the world around you. Mm-hmm. Um, 
so it gives you ownership. It takes the the um the burden off of the dungeon master a bit to to just make everything, and even more so uh, if if you really get into it, because uh, in city campaigns sometimes the party splits up. That's a thing that happens. Like people start doing different things. So when you are in different scenes with different NPCs, maybe the dungeon master lets you play some of those NPCs that you made because you made them. Mm-hmm. So it's a way to keep involved in the game when you are not necessarily your primary character isn't involved in the game. Sure. Hey, now so, why don't we talk about the starting points of a uh, of a campaign? Yeah. So the the base of operations is one of the big ones. Huh? We we saw that in um uh, uh Dragon Heist is Troll Skull Manor. You get Troll Skull Manor, right? Like. That is a that is a place that you can always go to. It's a it's a it's like a set piece that is always a part of the campaign. It's a place to start. It's a place to go back and rest. Um, it'll eventually, if it's not just a um, if it's not just a place for the player characters, like it's a more of a public space, like an inn or a neighborhood, then there are NPCs that'll be there. So therefore, that is a different kind of beat that you can have in your game. Um, where these NPCs they'll evolve and grow over the course of time and the course of play also. So those are those are two examples right there. Your base of operations is like a building that's like an inn or something or a neighborhood. And when you have that neighborhood, it helps if like everybody helps kind of build that neighborhood together. So it's not just the yeah. game master, dungeon master building that neighborhood. Sure, it gives the players something A to build and B to care about uh-huh. other than themselves. And so... Then you can start playing around, as Chris said, with those sorts of beats. You can start playing around with the drama of what do the characters not just want for themselves, but for this base of operations or for their neighborhood, and then how you can threaten that to create drama. Mm -hmm. Also, that solves some of the problem of this is a city that you live in, so don't just kill everybody because you live in a place and there's people that you care about there. So the, the next thing is the frame. So, like, who are the characters? What do they do in the city? Like, they live in the city. And who do they work for, if anyone? Maybe they work for themselves. So, for instance, say we're in a, a game in Sharn. Maybe there are a bunch of Inquisitors that work for, for the, the city of Sharn themselves, like, looking into um, murders and thefts and things like that. Uh, maybe maybe there are a bunch of private eyes in Sharn, too. That could be a thing. In Dragon Heist, they're, they're adventurers, right? Like... Their adventurers, they end up getting their own inn. So really what they do is they own an inn and tavern, right? They happen to be adventurers, but they also own this inn. Mm-hmm. So that's a thing. Um, in the city of Avalon, if you uh, listen to the... I've been releasing that the podcast, the Wednesday evening podcast also is playing the streets of Avalon. Uh, a couple of the characters came into the city from outside, and then a couple of the characters just kind of live in the neighborhood that this thing happens. And that is the uh, the, the frame for this is a, is more of a hard frame. It's... um they get a thing dropped in their lap, a box that everybody wants. So like they're uh, together by happenstance, right? Like mm-hmm. that is a frame that you can use. Like you're, you're all part of this thing now because you know, you're part of part of the thing that's going on the event. So it's another way to frame the thing. If you want to have a short campaign, that's only a few sessions. Right. And if you do a session zero, what, that's when you can build that frame with the players mm-hmm. who their characters are. And then when you come back for your first session, you can have the time to build a little bit of the decoration on that frame for if they say, you know, we're in the Thieves Guild and everyone decides that's going to be their character backgrounds, then you can put an NPC who is their overseer in the guild. Or if they're enemies of the guild, you can create the bad guys that are going to be hounding them as they do their adventures. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that that establishment of that frame 
gives you the blueprint from which you can expand. Yeah, you can actually, um, if if you're a game master, or dungeon master, and you want to really let your player characters get in on the on the building stuff, especially during session zero, and you decide that you're a thieves in a thieves guild, everyone's in a thieves guild. Like you can build out the hierarchy of the guild together. Mm-hmm. Sure. Like here are the five or six NPCs that are important in the guild, and then everybody else is just kind of like you know, also rogues, thieves in the guild. But then you have that, and like you said, you can have one of the other factions be fleshed out. Um, mm-hmm. We'll talk about factions later. Yeah. But but like as as like oh. a different different thieves guild, right? And you know since we're going to talk about since we are talking about session zeros, you know when you're creating the character, one of the things you can choose is a bond, right? Mm-hmm. And if you don't have characters choose each other as their bonds, those bonds are things that you can then use to build the city. You know, one character might have a family that's in the city. You know, where do they live? You can figure out you know where that is and what important story elements might be attached to them another person might have been a wizard who's um was an apprentice to a master wizard who has a tower on the other side of the city boom now you have an npc you can create that that's an element that you can build from for your story so you know all of this uh all of the uh flaws bonds, all those things about the character that are right on the front of the 5th edition D&D Adventurer Sheet can become things where you build the frame and attach them to the character's backgrounds. Mm-hmm. I, will, I will give another example of um, this, this kind of thing that we're talking about. Um, I am running a Eberron game using Dungeon World. So, like, I'm, I'm, I'm also running an Eberron game that's using D&D 5th edition. But, I'm also, but the, the one that I'm using running Dungeon World, the framing pieces are a neighborhood, everybody lives in this neighborhood together, and then we use the Dungeon World bond system, which is not very different in a lot of ways. I mean, it is a little different, but it can be used in a similar fashion to the way that bonds work in D&D. So, like, that's how the characters are all sort of tied together. And then I had everyone describe some locations and NPCs in the in the neighborhood, and then I had one very specific NPC that they all knew who was a um, a woman who was part-forged. Like, she has some war-forged parts they're a part of her because she, uh, she's part of a program, and that's part of the, the plot. She's part of a program through House Caneth about these veterans who, you know, lost limbs in the last war, getting Warforged parts. So they all know her. So she is the impetus for them all going, and they're and she's very good friends with all of them, and she's the impetus for them to start doing things when she goes missing. Mm-hmm. So that cool. that is a frame right there. It's a pretty that's that's a lot of framing work that we did to build out this neighborhood, to build all the, to put all the characters together and to make them care about a person so that when that person goes away, they have a reason to go find them. Mm-hmm. So that, and that that's really the brings us, yeah, that kind of brings us to the next uh, starting point, which is, you know, you give them a base of operation, you give a frame to the campaign in which the characters fit, and then you have to give some plot hooks uh-huh. uh, as a starting point. And, you know, this is super important. If you don't hear anything else that we talk about today, Hear this. This is a hear me now, believe me later. Uh, <laughs> to start your campaign or your adventure with an immediate, clear, and appropriate problem that the characters have to fix is important because otherwise they may sit there for four hours in the end and don't know what to do. Uh huh. And let me let me hit the examples real quick then. Mm-hmm. So, in in our Avalon game, the immediate problem is that we had this box. And everybody wants the box. So, like, 13 different factions are, like, basically shoving themselves down our throat trying to get this box from us. 
mm-hmm. that is the immediate, clear, and appropriate problem. Right. In um, in the Eberron game that uh, I am running on with using Dungeon World, the immediate, clear, and appropriate problem is that their friend is going to disappear. So, mm-hmm. and they are equipped to find this person. So that is yep. the immediate and clear problem. Yep. In the Embers of the Last War campaign, the immediate problem is that the characters witness a murder, and if they don't help the authorities find out who did it, they will be charged with the murder. Yes. Yes, yes it is. I, and, and boy, can I tell you how annoyed the players were with that? I'm sure they were. They're like, really? We're getting coerced by the watch? I'm like, yeah, you totally are. Pretty much. Welcome to Sharn. And, and that, that's exactly how it worked. It was, so when, it was really when, good. Yeah. So once you have that um, clear problem, then you can begin to think on a larger scale and have other problems that can be sort of environmental in the background. And by environmental, I don't mean the environment. I mean going on all around. So in, in terms of Waterdeep, the clear immediate problem was that you were hired uh, by Volo to go find his friend. Mm-hmm. But there was a larger problem boiling in the background of this war between the different evil guilds and organizations. Mm-hmm. Especially the Xanathar Guild and the, um, Zentarum. Uh, the Zentarum. Yeah. Yep. And so, you know, that larger problem isn't something that you immediately see, but as you go off on your adventure and, and straighten out the immediate problem, you begin to see the tendrils of this other problem reaching out into different areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm trying to think of some other examples that for that for that are that are slightly different. So there's the one in Dragon Heist. Um in Avalon it's just that everybody wants that box. That's the problem. It's a short campaign, right? It's only like mm-hmm. fifteen audio drama episodes, which is not it's it was like five it was like five or six sessions. So that didn't go beyond that. The in Dragon Heist, uh and there's the war, but there's also the coins, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. That's also a thing. And and in, in the in the Embers of the Last uh war it's it's marriage. I don't want to spoil too much, yeah. but yeah, uh, it's it's House and, Kenneth doing something that they shouldn't be doing. Yeah, that is causing all of these problems. But you don't know about it until you get deeper and deeper into the adventures. Well, here, I'll drop my uh, I'll drop my Eberron one, too. I don't think any of those people listen to this podcast. If they do stop listening. Um, <laughs> so Merrick's has a program where he's giving these people pieces to uh, like help their the fact that they're missing limbs and whatnot. But really, it's because he's dying. And um, he's trying he's trying this thing out where he is um, seeing if he can transfer somebody who's actually somebody's consciousness actually using Warforge parts um, into a Warforge so that they can continue to live on forever. Okay. Uh, and the 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 part forge thing is part of the experiment. Mm-hmm. And after sense. yeah after this experiment has gone on now for like well over a year like he is collecting. He's recollecting the data since these parts have been attached to people for a long period of time. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's why they're yeah. disappearing, because some of those people are being having those parts taken back from them. And also when that happens, some of their life is being, you know, taken, too. Right. So it's a it's not a, it's not a nice thing. It's a very selfish thing. And uh, it's because he wants to, you know, not die. Yeah. So, you know, throughout the, the role playing game hobbies history, this has been described in different ways back in the old Greyhawk box days they would talk about wheels within wheels each adventure is its wheel and then as you 
break out of the first wheel, you realize that you're just in a larger wheel and you have to break out of that. And then you realize you're in an even larger wheel. And so, you know, that's how it was described. Then if you look at, um, Knights black agents, they came up with the concept of the conspiracy, a conspiracy pyramid where you're dealing with the lower level, um, operatives at first, but at the top of this, uh, conspiracy is the leader. So you're, you're dealing with lower level until you reach, uh, finally the top of the pyramid. Yeah. Um, Chris, you described it in a different way. It's the, uh, I've heard it called the onion before. Uh, me and me and Phil have called it the onion. It's like you're peeling off these layers, and that's kind of what the conspiracy is like. You're peeling off these layers, getting to the to the center of this onion, and as you peel off more and more layers, you find out more and more things, mm-hmm. and there's more and more twists and more and more um, surprises, and it gets worse and worse until you get to the to the center of the onion. Right. So uh, you know, as you're thinking about your your uh, urban campaign, you don't need to detail every single thing. You don't need to know every step. Uh, in the onion or you know, every layer of the onion or every step on the conspiracy or, or every wheel that that's rotating around the characters. But, you know, knowing the general story does is helpful is really helpful because then it, that informs the design of your adventures and your encounters moving forward. Yeah. I think the most important things to know is the beginning and kind of where the end is. At least it's not, not if not the ending itself, like, what the bad guy's goal is so that that is like the end goal where the player characters will probably end up. It's like yep. confronting and facing and dealing with that situation. Right. And even if you just know some themes, you don't have to know the exact threat, but if you know the theme is, you know, aberrations coming through from the far realm, then you can sprinkle that into your encounters. It doesn't have to be every single encounter, but every once in a while, something weird. Think of it like the X-Files, right? They they have the the shows that are just weird, but then there's the, the canon sort of shows where you, you come back to the smoking man and, and the black oil and the stuff like that. You sprinkle that into every few encounters just to keep that thread alive and the, the, the characters know that they're on the right trail and they're following some sort of greater story. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a really good way to do it. Um, if you ever watched, uh, one of the ways to describe what, what you're saying also is, um, this idea of there is, there is individual plot, like, like episode episodic plot. And then there's meta plot, like, sure. and the meta plot is the thing that you get sprinkled into every episode or whatever of a TV show or a storytelling, uh, mm-hmm. arc. Uh, we, we've yeah. gotten, that used to be a thing that happened on TV until Netflix showed up with their, you know, binge-worthy TV shows. <laughs> right. Now we're just the... watching. Now we're just watching movies on TV that are twelve hours long. Right. That's pretty. You're pretty much summed it right up there. Storytelling has definitely changed uh, because of that. On the bright side, you know, um, that just means we have more different kinds of stories that we can reference in, for these True. things. True. So, uh, so that's the that's the conspiracy and all that good stuff. I mean, I mean, you can tell that long that just long story too if you want to. But even those have breaks, right? There's beats to them, mm-hmm. and some of those beats are like uh, when you're talking about themes. Sean, this is a, eh, this is a really this is a co- whole completely different topic that we just got into. Um, but when you have multiple themes and multiple uh, kinds of stories going on, then you can just hit on different ones at different times. That that's how you can break up your storytelling. No, it's important, I think, that we have this discussion, though, in terms of urban adventures, because everything is so close together and everything is so closely knit 
and there are there's a flow to city life right that that is different than as you said the episodic sort of go to one dungeon find out something hand wave the trip to the next dungeon find something um there's definitely a more coherent and connected um flow to city life and therefore to adventures that take place in a city well um the the urban fantasy is is like a thing these days right and even sure. even just um city based fantasy like uh like Fawford and the Grey Mouser and stories like that, those are more mm-hmm. episodic. And they were all, a lot of them were in Lankmar. Uh, there's, mm-hmm. oh man, there's Nix and, and er, Ergil, that's a new sort of like modern take on Fawford and the Grey Mouser. Okay. Uh, that's sword and sorcery. They, 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 they're based out of a city, but yeah, like it's a lot more fluid. Like I think of, I think of Harry Dresden. Like mm-hmm. I, I've read all the Dresden Files books so many times, which means that, those those stories and a lot of adventures that I've seen pop up, especially these these Eberron ones, they happen in a short period of time. Um, right. Like the, there's not like days and weeks that these stories take place over. Like they they happen in like a day or two or three mm-hmm. at the most. Mm-hmm. So that's a thing to think about when you're constructing your adventures. There's usually some sort of time component to them. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't and they are, they're compressed because everything's so right. close. So the time gets compressed too, right? Yep. Uh, so that's a thing to think about. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about what kind of adventures we can have now. So there, like Sean, you said earlier, like we can have pretty much every kind of adventure in a city. Yep, there are some that lend themselves more, I think, to sort of city uh, adventures, uh, which which we'll talk about right now. Yeah, yeah. So uh, we we did a whole episode on investigations. So I mean, we can we'll review it, review investigations real quick here, and just talk about a couple of different kinds that you can have. So there's like there's missing persons, there's murders, there's a theft that you have to you know find out who's, who stole something. There's something that starts off as a theft or a murder and turns into something else, like a conspiracy. Like that is a that is a classic that comes from um like elementary or Sherlock Holmes type stories. Mm-hmm. Like there's like oh this is a murder, and then you find out that it wasn't just a murder. Like it wasn't the simple crime of passion. Like there's this person was killed because they got they were in the wrong place at the wrong time, and there's really some drugs being smuggled in from a uh, from 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 outside of the city, and you know the they that that drug ring is now like you know in mm-hmm. in power and moving up, and they need to be stopped. Like that, right. that, that is like something that spirals out of control from the simple murder that it was to begin with. Yeah, and just remember for those investigation type uh, of adventures to make sure that there are no dead ends, true dead ends. There can be dead ends in terms of the characters follow a path and it doesn't lead to exactly where they thought it would. Um, But always give them an option of where do we go next? Mm -hmm. So a couple of things for that. Like there's the idea of the core clue. Like you will always find the clue that will lead you to the next place. There's Mm -hmm. the idea of the rule of three. Like the clue will always be in three places until they so like you can always put it in three different like if they don't find it in the first spot they'll find it in a different spot or at least there's mm-hmm. three different clues that will lead them to another place yep um hopefully the idea is that they will get one of those three roles if you're going to play the pass fail game which is that's a completely legitimate way to play mm-hmm. not my favorite way to play but it, it completely works i get why people like it mm-hmm. um red herrings can be a thing don't use too many i don't i i would say maybe one uh every every session if you want to uh twists can be a thing also well we'll talk about twists and heists but twists can be a thing in investigations too not the person that you expect it to be mm-hmm. so uh those things all work very effectively and just use the D and D rule set is pretty flexible for stuff like that with the skill checks and such right so there you go uh 
Heists. I don't think we've ever talked about heists on this show. No, I know that you have with uh, Misdirected Mark, but yeah, but not for D and D. And um, they work. It works really well in D and D. And I mean, you wrote one. I've run a, a bunch of them now. Uh, so the kinds of heist that exist, there's like steal a thing. There's break a person out of a out of a place. Um, there's put something in a secure place. That's one that a lot of people mm-hmm. don't think about. That happens sometimes. Yep. The 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 big thing about the heist is the box. Now, this is the metaphorical box. The box is the thing that you're trying that that is holding what you're trying to steal. Mm-hmm. Um, a box can consist of people, a place, and other defenses that are both known and unknown. Uh, another thing to think about is that there's probably a period of time where the PCs can research the box to figure out what they're dealing with. If you've ever watched Leverage or read any high stories or even watched Ocean's Eleven, there's a mm-hmm. whole planning phase. Right. Now, that can be a problem because you don't want to let people plan too much. So the idea about planning is not about planning. It's about gathering information so that they can do a thing. Mm-hmm. So... uh I have a house rule actually for researching the box that I tend to use. So I often give the player characters turns time. There's time because time advances. And if too much time advances, things start changing and then they don't have good information or like the thing that they're trying to steal is gone. So they can spend time to research. And when they uh, research, they make checks and every check has two DCs, the lower DC if they hit that, they get the information, but a complication occurs. The higher DC, if they hit that, that means they get the information and no complication occurs. And this information will either provide ways for the PCs to circumvent obstacles of the box, um, not be surprised about what they're dealing with so they find out information about the box, or grant them advantage in other situations when dealing with an obstacle that has been learned about. Mm-hmm. So that is, those are all like things that you can do, and if you ever watch, or it, it, that models the idea of some of the things that you see in, in those kinds of stories. Mm-hmm. Um, the time thing is also a, um, a house rule. Like as time passes, as you make checks, like everybody gets like a check a day or something like that. Cause like scoping out a place takes time. Doing research it, on a place it, takes time. It's true. And I mean, what Chris is talking about here is in the past, we've seen adventures or seen games where the planning stage drags on and on and on and on. And then when the when they go to do the heist, everything that they planned falls apart within the first five minutes anyway, and so all that planning time was was generally wasted. Yeah, and, and we'll so talk that's about why, that too. Yeah, and that's why he's talking about these house rules that kind of manage all that planning to keep it more um, more within a framework that works at the table. Mm-hmm. And also models the kinds of stories that we've seen in media. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, if you've ever played or heard of Dusk City Outlaws, I oh, yeah. kind of cribbed some of that stuff from that, some of the stuff from that game. Sure. It's kind of how, um, and not their heat mechanic or anything like that, but that's a good one too. I mean, you could t- literally go and crib the mechanic from that game for D&D. It, w- it would actually work the heat mechanic um, mm-hmm. and how the day-night cycle works in that game. But uh, th- this is a simpler way to do it too. Uh you should plan a twist, I think, as a game master, dungeon master. Mm-hmm. It's a thing that happens during the heist that no one was expecting because that's kind of a trope for, for right. heists. Um, and I just want to add one more thing to, to the twist. Sure. Is that it doesn't necessarily have to be a bad twist. It's true. A twist that's detrimental to the players. It could be a twist that actually helps them 
if they run into trouble. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, you can also give them flashbacks if you want and be like, look, you can spend your inspiration to have a flashback. That's a cool house rule mm-hmm. also. And that flashback and spending inspiration, like that is how they get their advantage on that role or maybe just a narrative thing that, that gives them a, an escape route or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so once you've done the information gathering phase, then you're going to do the heist. Now, here's the thing. I would suggest that you never make a heist fail or go off the rails on one failed check. That doesn't make any sense because it's never how these things work in storytelling. So you're not really modeling the storytelling of a heist that way. And I think that's important. Like, I think it's part of the point of, of, of role-playing game rules is to help model certain kinds of stories. Mm-hmm. I would make it somewhere between three or, three and five fails for the, um, the heist to actually go off the rails. That would be yes. my suggestion. And, and it's funny because writing a heist is much different than running a heist. Uh, running a heist that you create yourself, you can really roll with kind of the story as it's unfolding. Um, there may be things that you didn't think about that they try, or you come up with another security measure that, oh, I, why didn't I think of that as I was writing this heist? I'm going to throw it in, but I'm going to give them easy ways to get around it. Um, when you're writing one and you're not going to be running it, but another DM is, it's it's a lot harder to come up with all these contingencies. Um, that's why when I wrote the heist that I did for the uh, Embers of the Last, or, yeah, Embers of the Last War, I I kind of tried to focus the the heist mechanics down to just very specific checks that um, the players knew about but didn't know the details of based on the research that was given to them. So they were handed basically a packet of here's what the security measures are going to be like. So be aware of these things. And then as they went through, they could sort of follow a script through most of it, doing whatever checks they needed to do um, based on their plans. And then the twist comes at a time when um, they can, figure out how to do it on their own, but it's not going to ruin the actual heist itself. That is an interesting way to, to do the heist. I like it. You just kind of handed them the information so that they didn't have to do the research phase, right? Exactly. Because they were hired by someone who had done all the research for them. Nice. They just had to go in there and do the job then. Right. G- getting ready to deal with any twists that come up. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. Yeah, I, I, that's kind of like how, how a heist works to me. Uh, the uh, If you're looking for a way to present that information for yourself in notes, and if you're writing even writing these adventures, and, and like Sean's way is, is a very good way of, of writing that stuff out, but um, your box, you'll have two columns. Uh, it, one will be known obstacles, and one will be unknown obstacles. And then mm-hmm. when the player characters start doing research on stuff, the the unknown stuff or the how how difficult the known stuff is or how they want to deal with the known stuff because that research phase it might not even be that they they might try to take out obstacles especially if they're people before they even try the heist right mm-hmm. like yep. if you have a, a a Boku awesome security guard that is guarding the place like you might try to do something before that to make sure that that the security guard is not on shift that night you just have a plain normal guard exactly yeah so those are things that you can do before the heist even starts. So yep. like those are uh, the two columns. Then you'll have uh, maybe a little bit of a floor plan layout for yourself, so you know kind of like what the place looks like, um, where the thing is that they're stealing, and then you're kind of good to go with how to with with your notes for your heist. 
Mm-hmm. All right, let's move on to the next thing. Dungeon crawling. So dungeon crawling is D&D, right? Like, we, we know the dungeon crawl. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. any, comes... any basement, oh, you know, beneath any tavern that uh-huh. spreads out a little bit can be a dungeon. Yep. So the question that you need to ask yourself is, where are the dungeons in your city? In, um, in Sharn, they're hidden all over the place. I mean, the cogs and below that, where the Dakani Empire used to be, is where all the dungeons are. Um, Waterdeep, it's pretty obvious. There's this thing called Undermountain. Uh, you might have heard of it. It kind of exists. Uh, in Avalon, there's the sewers, but underneath the sewers, there is the ruins of Thorbrindor, which is the old dwarven um, civilization. Settlement. So th- yep. Settlement. Yeah, civilization, really, because uh, Avalon is like 30 miles across one way and 50 miles across the other way. It's a right, giant right. city. Right, so the, they're not everywhere, Like, but there's like these pockets of these ruins next to and beneath the city all over the place. So you can run into any of those at any time. And some of them, you know, have like prisons in them where there's like horrible great old ones that were locked away. It's almost a little like Kyber. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right. So that there's there's knowing where your dungeons are. Um, they can, I think, in city-based ones, like they can be shorter and more dangerous because, you know, you're so close to civilization. That's my right. opinion. You don't have to trek after you leave the dungeon for through a wilderness to get back to civilization to heal up and spend your money or whatever. So I think you're absolutely right on that. I think that's a great point. And and because it's a city, they can be shorter because they're more compressed, right? Space mm-hmm. thing. Yep. I think anyway. All right, so let's dungeon crawling. It's it's pretty much D and I mean, once again, think about all your themes and things like that, right? Like mm-hmm. and make that fit. That's a yep. that's a thing. Uh, let's talk about this. This is a little bit of a weird topic subject uh political intrigue intrigue faction play influence social standing the favors game i don't Mm -hmm. really it's it's not an easy there's not like an easy way to describe it i think we often all talk about it as like political intrigue right right um there's a lot of play here in in a city especially with the interaction part of D &D. Mm -hmm. um the big thing here is about making deals and owing favors i think i mean Mm -hmm. That's that's like what happens when you upset a faction or someone. I mean, you can't often just cut and run away from this place because this is where you live and this right. is where all the pe- people that you care about are. Like, you don't want to just bail on your city. Yep, and and this is where you want to go back to that main overall theme because you don't just want it to be oh I have to go talk to the mayor. You want to be going that going there for a reason, whether it to be whether to learn about his involvement in this overall plot or to save him uh, from himself or herself or to get favors that you need to shut down the threat. Uh-huh. Absolutely. Right. Like, and then, then you, then you owe somebody something or mm-hmm. people could come to you and they could owe you. Right. That's part of the game. Also, like you, you could be, people could be in debt to you and you could call on them for favors. Like, that's a thing that can happen too. In fact, in the city, like coin might not be the currency that's most important to you. Um, Very favors true. and favors and debts might be the thing that's most important to you. In fact, this stuff pops up in um, Dragon Heist here and there, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Especially especially after you get paid, because then you could loan people money and they could owe you. Mm-hmm. So I have a house rule for this stuff, um, for the idea of favors. So, like, if you owe someone a favor or someone owes you a favor, they can call on you uh, to collect at some point in the future. If they call to collect and you don't agree, the following happens. I mean, if you if they call and you just do it, then it's fine. Like, you wash your debt away. Mm-hmm. But if you don't, here's what happens. 
in the future, it's harder for you to ask favors. NPCs might just say no. They might require collateral in some way, or the DM might just give you a disadvantage on the roll if the if a roll is required in that situation. And then also, the person that you didn't do the favor for might take action against the player character or player characters. I feel like this is dependent on the faction, uh, on the fiction of the game, especially if it makes sense or not. Sure. That seemed to make sense. Yeah. It, yeah, it makes perfect sense because, like I said, it's all about that overall story and how how this fits. And, and you can very much, um, this isn't the word, but I'm going to say it, mechanicalize those favors or those we call it, we call it, We call it mechanizing. Right. Those, uh, those influences. And you know, give them game mechanical benefits or drawbacks. Maybe people will stop selling you things if you are in disfavor of the Merchant's Guild. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Or uh, charge you a lot more. Or, right, and that could be very bad if you are a party that relies on healing potions instead of a cleric to to get your healing. Oh yeah. Yep. So, um, in in this faction play, also like you have to have factions. Then, like in Dragon Heist, we saw that right. There's factions everywhere. Mm-hmm. There's tons of them, right. and they all they all do things. They all have goals. They all have desires. They all have uh, wants. It's, I think the D and D the way that they're presented in Dragon Heist, I think it's great. I think it's a little cumbersome if you want to go and, and model that, right? It's they're huge. yeah, bet. yeah. So, so what you really need for a faction is you need a face. So an NPC that's a face, which could be a name and a couple of quirks or whatever, and, and, and like a motivation. Um, the faction itself needs a motivation and a goal. That's important to have. And they also need a mode of operation, like how they tend to deal with things. Mm-hmm. Um, after that, you can just sort of fill it in. Like, do they have money? Do they have the resources? How powerful are they? You can give them a rank level if you want between like one and five to show how influential they are. Um, those are those are the kind of things that you can do. But that makes it, it that makes it that means you can put it on an index card. I mean, mm-hmm. that's that's kind of my uh, idea for like if I can prep it on an index card for myself, then it works for me. Uh, as sure. far as like being usable at the table, I mean, if I want to like sit there it. and write out more stuff, then I will do that. Um, mm-hmm. All right, and then I guess the last thing that I want to say about adventure types is uh, is the one from the Streets of Avalon, which is like, oh look, you have the MacGuffin that everybody wants. Mm-hmm. Like, good way to be the center of attention. This actually happens in Dragon Heist too, because you get the fi- five hundred thousand gold pieces, right? Right. Or you have or the you stone get the of location. The Lord. Right. You you have the stone. You have the location. Um, so everyone wants it and they're coming after you. Yeah. So like that, that is a, that is a very much a, an adventure type in, in these sort of like urban adventures that happens. Um, and that could even be a person like you have the MacGuffin that everybody wants, which is a person that's important, right? Like that happens too. I've seen that story a million times. Uh, all right. So these frameworks that we just talked about for adventures, they can be mixed and matched, especially, uh, and they can also be fractally designed, which means like you can expand them and put different of these adventures inside of an adventure type. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is especially the case, I think, in political intrigue or just intrigue and investigations. Because mm-hmm. right. you could you could investigate until you get to the part where you need to do the heist, or you could be in a dungeon and all of a sudden come into conflict with different factions within the dungeon. Uh, that you need to socialize with. Well, the, the, I guess the heist one could be one too, because while you have that heist going on, you could like, up, oh, we got to go break into this dungeon to find the information that we need, or we need to go and investigate this person yep. and 
find out about them so we can get the information that we need or the the keypad that we need or the the the, the code that we need to get into a place or we got to go do this favor for this person so they'll do the favor for us like there's a whole lot of stuff there right mm-hmm. for sure uh all right so those are the frameworks and i think they're they're that's a pretty good explanation of all of them um the last thing i want to talk about concerning this is how to present your city you have some options here like you could just map out the whole thing have fun with that it's a lot of boxes yes. a lot of street a lot of street planning i mean the city of Lankmar map had like a hundred and it had like two hundred and ten locations on it, if I remember mm-hmm. correctly. And yeah. not every location was numbered. Oh no. Not, not every house was numbered either. It's just those are the important sure. ones. Yep. I love that map, by the way. <laughs> um the other thing that you can do is a mind map. So like you can just like have a bunch of circles with like lines between them that are to the important places in the city. Mm-hmm. And then that those are kind of like like you're gonna travel from this neighborhood to this neighborhood or this building to this building, like and these are the ones that matter. Uh, you could also just have a neighborhood map for your neighborhood mm-hmm. if your most of your adventure takes place there, and then you can have alludances to other parts of the city. So, like, um, the rest of the city is just descriptions, uh, sure. short descriptions. Yep. And then the other one is like you could just have a list of the important places, or just put in the important places as they come up. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that's that's my pr- pr- preferred way to do a city-based adventure. Um, is just have the important places as they come up. Uh, the if you look at Dresden Files and Fate, they this is there's a great version of that in there for how to like build that out. Okay, um, to to build your own city. Yeah, yeah, because of how mm. they do it. So, and I will. Uh, the way that it goes is that the game master can make like a couple of places that are important, but then every player also gets to make a place, and then they put a face to it, which is an NPC. And that kind of loops back to what we we're talking about with your bonds from your character, you can uh-huh. create something like that. Yep. Now let me give you the D and D version of the rules. Cause like, uh, in fate there's like aspects and all that good stuff, but we don't have that. Sure. in D&D, So we're yep. not going to bother with that. So the idea is that you give every place a, uh, a boon or a flaw. You don't have to, but you can. And if a place has a boon or a flaw, then if it's got a boon, you can leverage that boon. And if it happens to come up in some situation that you have to make a role, then you have advantage on that role. If the flaw comes into play, then you have disadvantage on that role. I like it. And that's a very simple, easy way to make like a place matter mechanically, which mm-hmm. I think is very important in your D and D games. Sure. Uh, I think that's a pretty good overview of urban adventures and how to do that stuff. What do you think? I think so. It's a huge topic, but I think we we at least skim the surface pretty well. Yes. If any of you folks out there in listener land would like us to focus in on something else, because I know there's like 1,500 to 2,000 of you that listen to us based on the numbers, uh, we would love to hear it, and we would love to provide that information to you. Um, I mean, we'd love to do a show on that kind of stuff. We'd like to to help out and uh, give you folks what you want to listen to. Mm -hmm. Well, with that, I will say, um, one, please back the streets of Avalon. Me and Sean would both greatly appreciate it. Uh, The PDF is $10. It's super cheap. Uh, that's on purpose because we want it to be an easy buy for you folks around this, uh, you know, holiday season. And I wanted to say thank you everyone so much for listening. And let's do a few Patreon shout outs. Uh, Chelsea Clark, Dan Simons, David Walker, Donahue McCarthy, Drew Smith, Evil Rich, Glenn Seiler, Jason Pitt, Jean Lorbert, Jeff Stevens, Jim Morrison, John, just John. Oh man, that one's always hard for me. Huto Rutilla. If you could tell me the frenetic spelling of that Huto, I'd greatly appreciate it. Um, M.T. Black, Matthew Pezzarelli, Pezzarelli, sorry, Nate Brooms, Remy Bilido, Rob Bush, 
Robert Aducci, and Robert Day. And speaking of patrons, if you'd like to be a patron of Down with D&D, you can click on the link to our Patreon page on the website, and for $2 a month, you can get yourself a shout-out like you just heard. Uh, I've also been drawing a bunch of maps lately and releasing them via Patreon. i am uh, been working on that Dyson style of map making and sort of getting to my own. So, like, you'll be seeing some more of those. I actually just uh, finished one up that I want to kind of get out there. Nice. Or for $4 a month, you not only get a shout-out, and maybe your name said right or maybe incorrectly, but it's fun either way. Yep. You also get to see our pre-production show notes, and you get access to our Slack Room for Life, where we will hop on and discuss whatever you want to talk about. Uh-huh. I mean, you know, if you have suggestions for the show and you put them there, they'll probably go like up to the top of the yep. show list. If you can't help us monetarily, but you want to give us a boost, you can do so with an Apple Podcast review. Those help even if you're not listening via Apple Podcasts, since many other podcatchers use Apple Podcasts as their way to rate and rank shows, and that helps make us more visible. Sean, buddy old pal, where can we find you on the internet? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Sean Merwin or on the Dowin D&D G Plus community while it lasts. And you can also check out the doings of the Mad Wizard at Menagerie Wizard on Twitter. How about you, Chris? Oh, man, I'm I'm at Misdirected Mark. That is the, the network Twitter. So, like, if you post there, like, we'll see it. Um, I am also at The Light 101. That is another great place to find me on Twitter because those are the places that I tend to go to these days. Or you can just go to the website like, and leave a comment there. I'm always on that. Uh, you can catch other great shows there, such as this one, too. She's a Super Geek, which is an actual play RPG podcast highlighting women as GMs. Join them every other Tuesday for lots of different RPGs and guests. Down with D&D is a misdirected Mark production, the media arm of Encoded Designs. What are we going to do now, Sean? We're going to go kill those nasty urban monsters. You're down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. You're down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. You're down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? Nobody. Down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. You're down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. I'm down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Down with the end. Rawr.